Hi everyone and welcome to Dr. Dark After Dark number 18, Discussions with Remy Tito. Uh, Remy is a co-founder of Real Vision and he's also just going into his ninth year at Global Macro Investor, which you may have heard of as being called GMI and that's working with uh, Raul Powell. And Remy is one of those indispensable behind the scenes guys. Um, and as he told me the other day when we were organizing this, he doesn't get let out much to talk. So, um, you know, this is, uh, so we're super thrilled to have him because he is a, a guru at all sorts of different data. Um, and, um, and, that's, and so that's what we're gonna dive into. Um, as always, this is an investment advice. Please do your own research. And really there's no agenda in this conversation. We're just gonna see where it goes. Um, so Remy, welcome. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Uh, just one clarification. I do have requests for talks. I just uh, reject them all the time. Uh, the only reason I, I, I agreed to yours is because you have a lot, we have a lot of mentors and private messages, and that's why it won't be shown to do it with you. Uh, okay. But, you yeah, know, I don't, usually I do not talk much. Although I'm a, a co-founder of Real Vision, I do not go on camera like Raul or Grant did. Uh, it's just not my cup of tea. I'd rather be the guy behind the scene, like uh, you said earlier. That's what I do. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I've done many businesses and the, the, the people behind the scenes, they're just as important as the ones at the front. So, uh, you know, and I absolutely... Well, the, way I, the, the way I qualified it, because now I'm, I'm, I'll just take a, a, a step away from Real Vision, yep. um, is they are the brains, I'm the muscles. This is the way we, we this is the way it worked uh, when I was there. And I was the guy, you know, the guy on the ground to make things happen at the time when we were growing a very small company. Now it's a whole different ball game. It's a very structured corporate with nearly 100 people and stuff. Uh, but yeah, and, and even at GMI, is Raul is the brain and I'm the muscle behind to make sure that he's on top of everything and, and on point with everything and, and develop a framework. That's basically what I've been doing for eight years with him, developing a framework months after months after months. Great, perfect. So, so look, I, I, a lot of our listeners know you from, from Twitter, but it'll be great just to hear a bit of background. Um, I mean, you've given some then, but you know, past and present. Yeah, sure. So I came to finance eight years ago. Uh, my background is not finance at all. Um, with, with working with Raul. So at the time, uh, I was doing application, developing applications for iPad and all the IT stuff. And I did, I did a revamping of all the platform for GMI. And uh, Raul came to me and just asked me if I would like to join the company as an analyst. And I'm like, yeah, great, I would love to. I don't have the degree, I don't have anything. I love economy, but I don't, I don't have what you need. And his answer was like, it doesn't matter, I will teach you. And I've been there eight years now. So my, he needed some technical skills with computers that an economist couldn't learn. So his idea was, I'm going to take a tech guy and teach him the economics. So then I have what I want. Yeah. So for example, when I, when I, when I started GMI, um, you know, every month we write about the world. So there is a, we have a, a framework with 2000 charts in it. So every month you need to update the charts. You need to have them on top. You make new ones. So the guy that worked before me uh, will usually, usually take a week to do that work. Now, because of our tech skills, I was able to create uh, a program and it took me about an hour and a half to create everything it needs for the world. 
So that's where my tech skills come in. And then after that, he just he trained me personally on the on all the economic stuff, and and yeah, it's been it's been working well to be honest. Right. And I think what was good for us is that I'm not trained like a finance guy, so I don't look at at things like a finance guy. When Raul is, so that gives him an edge, and he gives me direction, and we always bounce off each other a lot, and it's always useful to to work like that. And it's very different. That's what is being made. That's why TMI is so different. And so good because we we're not all biased towards the same thing or trained the same way to look at things, and I think that is very important, especially nowadays with all the data you have available. You know the way you interpret it is as important as as important as what you get. Yeah, absolutely. And so now that's really interesting. So basically, you you reduced a week's worth of work to one and a half hours with some clever scripts, and we don't need to go into all the tech, but like. Yep. But that's okay. So that basically no, got, means so you... what I've done is so I use Blue, I use Bloomberg, right? I have a Bloomberg terminal. The data come in my Excel spreadsheet. Then I developed my own uh, macro inside. So the data create because you have to generate them into images. Always the same the same size. Everything has to be consistent. Very professional. Yeah. Uh, so basically, I have a system that does that almost all automatically. Okay, so, and, and so just to be clear, this isn't just the data. It's not the raw data. This is actually the, the, the output graphs. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So some, some are through Bloomberg. Some I have through, through script to capture it online. Some are manual. So I have any, some are from global financial data. So I have a lot of sources. And, and here what I've created is basically a template of everything, right? It's all available very quickly. I can update them. So at any time in, in, a, in a week, Raul, or in the weekend, any time, he can say to me, I want to see the whole world right now updated. I literally take two hours to do it. And it's produced in a way that he can use it instantly to write and we can publish within an hour. So that's how, you know, this, we, we stream the process, the whole, the whole way of doing it. And so we improved the way we work at GMI because of it. Yeah. Okay. So basically you save a week, which gives you an extra week to think. Um, and Correct. Correct. Okay. So now the, you know, the billion, well, the billion's nothing these days. So I guess it's, it's a quadrillion dollar question, but um, how, okay. So I've got 2000 charts in front of me. How on earth do you, let's say that you, you're coming, let's say you don't already have like a thesis and you're, you're trying to come up with one. Um, maybe something's really changed, like with COVID, right? That changed so many things. So you probably have to yeah. you know, start from scratch on some things. Um, how do you start analyzing that number of charts to come up? Because what's really hard is coming up with that kind of, a, I, called it like, like, I call it like a golden thread. What's the thread that can link all the different data so together? That, so that can be, so see, that can be anything. So Twitter is very useful for that. Because yeah. I look on Twitter, I see a chart, and last week somebody posted, you know, we got the, the Singapore retail sale falling by 52% in May, I think it was, <laughs> if I'm right. Right, okay. So that, that, I see that. I see that on Twitter, or I see that on my Bloomberg, you know, what's the data coming out today? Now, instantly, I look at my framework, and I can see Singapore and every different sector. So I have the economy, manufacturing, Retail, that's how my, my framework is built. It's, it's, it's segmentized, yep. then sub-segment. Then I can have the whole picture in really, for a country like Singapore, it takes me two minutes. So I can, my starting point will be a data that's released today or a chart I see on Twitter. 
And then I dig into my framework and see what do I have there that can match, that can tell a broader story, what's happening here. And, and see, if, for example, in Singapore, example, they are May retail sales. Right? Yep. We are in July today. So it's absolutely, to me, it's not even news anymore. And the markets already know that. So the, the data is not moving market anymore. And on Singapore data, nothing moved. We know that. And, and that's when using all the real-time data and I was changing everything. Because on, so on the chart I saw about, about uh, retail sales in Singapore, I made one where I compare retail sales in Singapore with the real-time retail sales, which already tells me that in June they're going to be at minus 40%. I already know that. And it's, it, it's a simple model what I've made is I average every daily point in a month for the retail and I compare it with the official data and it's almost matching. Now, even if Singapore opened at the end of the month in June, the first two or 20 days, the first two weeks or 20 days have been low. So if you average all that, you know that this month is going to be around 40, 35, 40% for June. So it gives us a more real time and what's happening now rather than what happened before. And do you think that, so for our listeners, you know, th- this is obviously something you, you know, you, you, you put many, you know, it's, it's your, your job, right? And you do this all the time. And so for the more kind of casual investor, can they, do you think they can still get kind of edges by analyzing data or, or because I don't think the average investor can have 2000 charts. Um, it, it, it's just kind of not going to work. No. No, no, it's not only having them. You have to be able to look at them in the right timing and in the you know, right moment. What do I look now? It's like, it can be really overwhelming. Now, yeah. I don't even think real, real data for us as macro analysts uh, at GMI give us an idea of what's happening now. But there is another set of real, like, real-time data that is really real-time data and is very expensive to access. So I don't have access to those. You know, when I build, so I built the whole new framework last month about what I call alternative data. And so I contacted a lot of services to do it. And most of them, so some are like 30,000 just to access the platform. Then it's 2,500 per search. Some are 50,000 for one data series. So it's like, it, this is not accessible for us. It's too expensive for us to do it. And this, these are the data that each funds are using. Right. The, the, the expensive one that make them act in real time. So, so it's interesting that if we think earlier in the year, um, when and and you know, and different people um, discovered kind of COVID, and it wasn't called COVID at first, of course, at different times. Um, but it seemed to me that it was oh, basically the data was all out there, right? It was governments were giving people data every day, uh, and some governments were very slow, and obviously all the data is highly inaccurate you know, we, it, it was kind of chaos, right? But it kind of felt to me that it was very, it democratized data in some ways because I, I was tracking it in a spreadsheet on my own and it, you know, and actually there were a bunch of head funds that missed all this and they're paying millions of dollars a year for all their data. Um, well, where they, where they messed up is that the COVID data was available on Bloomberg from very early on. Yeah. You could get it there and without maintaining a, a spreadsheet manually. I was doing it manually too. Yeah. Until I started to cover 40, 50, 60 countries, then 20 states. I couldn't do it manually. So I had to find a way to do it automatically. I, I did, initially, I did build a way uh, doing it automatically. Then I moved to Bloomberg because it's just easier. Yeah. No, I was just kind of wondering that it, it felt to me that it was a, 
when something happens that's totally exogenous and completely different, no one knows, you know, well, the data is completely new, right? And so it was, um, yeah. and so therefore there no, isn't, it's, it, yeah. There it, is no it exactly what you, it's new, so we don't know if it's reliable. We don't have back history to test it. We just have to trust the data as they come. Yeah. And then just take it for what it is. And, and this is part of the, of the noise we see on Twitter of where you have people that give importance to death rate and also to testing. And you can't really agree to it because there is so much data available that is creating so much noise about it. And it's really hard to, you know, to filter all that and make a narrative about it, which is, this is what we tried to do since the first report, I think in mid-Feb, I think we started. Yeah. When Adima initially was a, a daily report, then it turned into a weekly about COVID, which was purely looking at the numbers. No bias, no opinions. This is what we see in the number we've been given. Now, if you agree or disagree with it, it my job is not to agree with this number, is to report them as I see them. And, and it worked. You know, it was a lot of people, I got a lot of pushback from a lot of people. And a lot of people were grateful that it was presented this way without any bias. It's, it gives you a whole picture of what's happening now. And, and yeah, COVID has changed, has changed how real data is used now. They, and even in, in, in the way I work, I have to switch, you know, we, we, use, I, we, we were basing our framework only on economic data we get from everywhere. Uh, the data released a month, with a month or two months lag. And, and now it's, we realize it's just not enough. COVID is so important that we can't, I can't build a narrative about what's happening in retail in Asia if I don't understand what's happening now on the ground with COVID. There's no point to tell you that it's gonna grow in the next six months because you're gonna tell me I don't care about that, I care about what's happening now. Right. So that, and yeah. it, it, it pushed us at GMI to turn into, to have an, a, a real-time real element to our framework. We had no choice. And it's been very, very helpful to do that. Yes, that's really interesting, right? Because what you're, I think what you're saying is COVID is, the data from COVID is so real time. I mean, it, it's more than daily. I mean, there are several countries updating several times a day. Um, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And so in effect, what it's done is it's like the Singapore retail sales are a great example. Well, data from May is so completely useless now that it is basically an irrelevant data point. Um, and yeah. so it's kind of having all this real time data has to some degree, made a lot of the traditional data which lags by one to two months. Um, and not all traditional data lags that much. I mean, the, I think, you know, the US is pretty good at having a lot of weekly data as well, um, but it's still not daily. Um, so it's- um, No, yeah. exactly. No, you have, you have some weekly. The, the US is the only country that gives you weekly. You don't have yeah. weekly anywhere else, Correct. right? And some of them. Now, again, you need to, uh, you need to understand all that data and, and and use it to create your own thing with it and not using just one data, data point, sorry. Um, and, and this is what we're trying to do now is mixing all those data available on a daily basis or weekly basis to forecast and understand where manufacturing is going uh, or you know, where the sentiment is moving. This is, this is for us, this is what we need to do now. It's not even reporting on what's happening. It's we, need, we add to move a step forward. And you know, I did I did some some tests uh, using railroad data that I shared with you. I saw I show you the charts, and it's not we can't really back up because we don't have a story. So far, it's a perfect match for ISM. 
and their weekly data. So you can tell me, I can almost, I, I'm going to see this month, but I think I can almost predict accuracy of ISM with 80% using real-time data. Yep. So then we don't need to wait at the end of the month to see what's happening. We already know. So then, then that's the kind of stuff that Raul is going to use when he's going to have to put a trade about currency, for example, or a trade about bonds. Like what's happening now? What's happening now? Where is it going? And that's how we work. That's why it's so useful for him. Right. And, and so how, how, talk me through how do you go from, I mean, basically what you're saying is, well, we have much more real-time data now and it can actually be used to predict the lagging data <laughs> um, when it eventually yes. does come out. And so how do you go from that to then, to like you just said, let's say there's a, um, ultimately Raul recommends a currency trade, let's just say. It doesn't matter what the trade is, but how do you go from the data to, what's that process? I'm just trying to get into this because I think it's really helpful for- Okay, so first, so usually when, when, when well, I'm, I'm not going to talk for Raul because in the end, there is still part of his magic that he does when he sees things that I don't. Yep. Um, but usually the process is, we do already have a framework for any currency. So when there is a move happening somewhere, we already know what's coming and what we're going to talk about. So whatever the trade is, so it's going to bring, you know, it's going to bring, uh, I think the latest trade, I don't remember what it was. I don't remember. He's going to kill me if you hear that. I don't remember the, the latest trade he put on FX um, without looking at it. But, 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 but what I at the moment, that, I mean, it's been roughly, you know, basically long, long US dollar, but with a longer time frame. So I think that's been yes, kind of yeah, always, But that, that's the case. Well, Raul has been very early on that trade. Uh, at the moment, we're getting a lot of pushback because it's, it's not happening now. Now, bear in mind, he's been long dollar since 2013. Yes. And as a matter of fact, he switched his life from euros to dollars back then. So, yes, it's a working trade, <laughs> you know, for him. That's for right. sure. And also, but Remy, it's like I was, um, I was talking with um, others about this too. The yeah, Twitter and I think a lot of subscribers to services, they, they think if a trade goes against them, you know, if they do the trade and the next day it's gone against them, they start complaining. And, you know, it's... Yes, yes. I mean, what, what I know for sure... We saw a lot of that in Macro Insider. Right. And, and, and I know one thing for sure with, with uh, well, yeah, so Macro Insider or GMI, like this is not meant to be buying call options that expire tomorrow. I mean, this is generally longer term. No. And what I'm always trying to stress to people Correct. is you've got to align your investment thesis with, from a time perspective too. Um, you know, for, for me, it tends to be six months to two years, but I have some things which are really long term. Um, but I, I can't, I get so stressed if I'm trading, yeah, stuff that expires tomorrow. Well, this is the part, this is the part that people don't seem to understand or forget uh, is everybody is going to have a different time frame and risk appetite. Yes. These two elements are cha- uh, will change the way you react to a trade that someone gives you. That's simple. It's that simple. And and a macro insider, this is why it's very good, is Julian is more short-term and Raul is more mid to long-term. So they kind of complement each other. Uh, but yeah, it's true that as soon as a trade doesn't go the way we want, as soon as we want, we have people hearing about it or, or just pointing it, at, pointing it at us. When, and Raul keep repeating that over and over, time frame, uh, risk appetite, time frame, you know, it's, it's just a basic to, to, for, for trading that it's, it's hard to have it, especially now with, with FinTweet, you know, you have so many people uh, on it and some don't understand it yet. You just need to see return tomorrow. 
and that that comes with 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 the way things work at the moment and especially you know when someone see robin wood is 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 heavy on a position they did 100 percent today that's the mindset they have when they invest in any assets and we know that cannot work like that yeah no i totally get that yeah you know i know a lot of people know but people that pointed at us that we're wrong usually don't sure but and, I think and maybe we can be wrong also you know we can also be wrong and it's okay um it's okay we 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 are okay to be wrong because we've done eight words of work so if we're wrong we're wrong but we've we've worked hard on it you know we can produce you a 50 pages argument about the dollar without you know without um blinking very easily and 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 maybe artistic is wrong but it's well drilled at least right and i think that's really important for everyone to understand so um first of all I think this is an incredibly difficult market to trade. And I think anyone that thinks it's easy is either lying, deluded, or kind of crazy. Um, you know, the, no one has called the tops and bottoms perfectly. Um, some people, yeah, but some people have, have worked out the virus was going to be a problem. Those people, I was one of them, then didn't, didn't at all get the, you know, the, the stock kind of comeback. So it's like, it's an incredibly hard market. And I think people just need to be, to your point, if you do your homework and know the data and you have a, a thesis and the, the trade is the, the, the same time horizon as your thesis, then this is all good. And by the way, you're going to lose some and that's okay. Uh, and, and as long as you risk manage properly, you don't bet the farm on one trade. Like, unfortunately, people tend to learn when they get totally wrecked on something. <laughs> Um, and um, yeah, that, this is the best way to learn, right? You have to lose. Yeah, it's the best way to learn, but not if you just lost fifty percent of your capital. So um, yeah, no, no. And um, no, but that's and, that, and that's the part where where see the the Robin Hood narratives is is twisting all that because it makes you believe because you see the news, you see the trade, you see all that. We see a lot of it, and it makes people feel like this is easy. It's easy to do it. I can make money tomorrow. Yeah. And, and I think it's a very big mistake. You know, you look, you look at a, you look at the past thinking you're going to know the future. And if you not, if you haven't done your homework for that, that can be very risky and very dangerous. And I think we're going to see that on the bounce, on the bounce that happened now since, since March, uh, it seems to me that it's only based on liquidity. Yeah. Uh, Cause the data is definitely, you know, the data, the fundamentals, everything is off charts especially when you look at EPS and stuff like that. Um, so it, it makes me feel like liquidity has been the, the very big thing. Now, is analyzing liquidity enough to make a full, frame, um, a full frame, framework for investment? I don't think so. It might work short term, and at some point it will work against you because there is not enough work done on it. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe that's enough. Just liquidity is up. We just go up on everything. Maybe that, that's how it is. But I cannot... I can't go with that narrative, uh, knowing what I know and being used out to do the work I'm used to do. Right. It's just too simple, too simplistic for me. Right. And I think like, I mean, the meme is like, you know, and the fed goes burr and, um, and, uh, in fact, that was such a meme. I did a podcast called that, but I was kind of joking about it because of the point, but, um, and, and you see a lot of people on Twitter, especially kind of say, well, it's that simple. So I'm just going to, go full long risk yeah. and lever it up. And the point is, is like, you know what? That may well work brilliantly for one month, two months, six months, one year. But one day 
if, if that's the amount of work you're putting into it, one day when something happens, you know, you, you get very complacent and you can get completely wrecked. So, um, yep. Look, think of the stock market, think of the stock market like a cooker, a pressure cooker, right? So what they're doing with, uh, with putting the money, they're closing the pressure so it doesn't go out. But at some point, if you put too much pressure on it, it's going to explode your cooker. No choice. Right. So basically, the pressure is the VIX, basically. Uh, Correct. Yeah. Well, except the and, and putting the money and putting no the press, putting the money in it, you're just yeah. closing you're closing the tap that normally you you use to let the pressure go out. Yeah. Right. So in this case, you close it with the money, but the pressure is not going away; it's staying inside. Yeah, I think. And this pretty- is exactly what they're doing. To, that's basically sums up the last uh, 30 years since Alan Greenspan in 1987. So. <laughs> <laughs> basically, basically. So in, when you're looking at the different data that you look at, um, right now, are there other risks that you kind of see on the horizon? You know, we, we sort of, if you think back to January, if you talked about this virus, you were kind of labeled crazy. And then in February, you were less crazy, but it was going to be fine. Stock market's all-time highs. Yeah. Of course, by March, everyone was like, oh, it's completely obvious that this is a problem. But it's kind of like now it's a known, it's a, very un- it's a much better understood problem now. And often, yeah. you know, if this is a bear market rally and then has a leg down uh, or, or another crash, maybe even new lows, who knows? But that's normally, often those things don't happen because of something that's kind of known. It's often a left field thing. Um, and so is there any way you can kind of use all this data to, to, to try and see those before other people do? See, I was thinking, I was thinking, um, I was thinking about that yesterday, actually, about the, the trigger, right? Because we know the COVID is there. We know the COVID. So even if days goes up, it's not going to be a shock, right? Um, now, what could trigger that if it's suddenly a mutation, a mutation in a virus, instead of affecting older people, affect younger people, yep. right? which is something we cannot forecast. It's also something possible in a virus, right? That will be a game changer on the virus side. Now, the other event that I see obviously this year as a, a very complicated event, and we said we're not going there, but we're going to go quickly, is the election in the U.S. Yeah. Um, I think the, I don't think the winner is the problem. The problem is the election itself. Uh, and I explain, I'm going to explain myself here is if Biden wins, you can be sure that all Trump supporters are going to reject the result. Yep. If Trump wins, it's going to be the same case for the other side. Now, mm-hmm. the way they reject it is going to, can create a lot of problems. The way, you know, the way they, 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 they digest the, the, the news when this happens can, can create a lot of instability in the U.S. And, I, and that's why I said the problem is the election, not the outcome necessarily right now. Uh, because regardless, I think, I think it's going to be a tough time ahead. I don't think it's going to be easy. Uh, recovering from COVID, it's just the beginning of what's happening. Uh, we know that now we're going to have all the insolvency playing out. Business are going to close. More people are going to lose job. We know that this is just happening. It's a given. And, and I think, and that's where um, it's very important uh, to understand that, is that every country, is, they need, um, they need glo- the, lo- the globalization to bring growth back up. Now, if you don't open the borders, you're not going to have that. If you don't take 
control of your, of your infections, you're not going to open the borders. And no country is going to open them to you. Otherwise, you will make all the, the, the effort that each country made useless. You know, let's right. say tomorrow Europe open, open to America and everybody can flow in. Europeans are going to say, why are you doing that? Why we've been into lockdown? Why you spend so much money if you do that now? So then you come at a point where every country is going to have to think like that for political reason, for stability reason, they don't have a choice. And, and I think those are the risks that are coming, I think. And if they don't reopen the borders, I don't say it's happening. See, we can see, we see local quarantine coming up in Europe. There was two in Spain this weekend, one in Germany and England the week before. And I can tell you, being, living in Spain on the ground, I know in the next four weeks where I live, I'm in a quarantine. I know it. It's written all over. Right. And, and so my wife's from uh, New Zealand. And so that's a great example of a country that did a fantastic job dealing with COVID. And they sort of have to open the border to Australia at some point because it's such a crucial, yeah. it's such crucial economic. Yeah. But they're not going to open that. Australia and New Zealand, there's no way that border is going to like get opened easily for people, even coming from, say, a Hong Kong or Taiwan. Where... Yeah, but between them, between them, it's fine because it's, it, in the end, it, it, it's, it's a small flow of people to, to, yes. to control. Right? But if you open between all those countries and you become thousands and thousands of people, you can't control what's happening. Right. So, yeah, exactly. Right. So, I, yeah. So I, I guess my point was going to yeah. be that it, it sounds like what you're saying is that from a, if we think from like a world dollar liquidity standpoint, um, really, you know, the US has to run a big deficit in order to fund dollars around the world. Um, you know, it's just been covered many times by people. And at the end of the day, if the borders are shut and trade by, you know, people are not moving, you know, th this is, again, uh, would give a, uh, um, a bid for the US dollar. Um, and this could take a very long time to go away. And no one's really talking about it um, because... Yeah, even if yeah and, and look, just look at the, at the US, sorry. Just look at the US at the moment. Using real-time data, we know that they're losing about 2 million visitors a day at the moment. Yeah. Okay. Those visitors, they spend money in the airport, they have an hotel, they take a cab, they go to restaurants, they go shopping. That's 2 million people missing per day for the last three months. Right? Yeah. This is going to be missing. No choice. You know, it's simple math. Then that money is not coming in. So you can, you can print all you want. Nobody's going in the shop to replace that, that, that revenue stream for the shops or for business owners. You know? Right, exactly. And also, of course, Americans aren't going outside the US. So, um, And most countries have, I mean, it's, it's different in every country. I mean, Spain is a little higher, for example. Um, I think somewhere like US is slightly lower. But on average, tourism and all the, as you said, the hotels, the restaurants, all of this stuff related to tourism, it's often around 10% of GDP. So it's a huge number. Yeah, it should be. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, about, it's about that. I don't know the number by, by Edo in Spain, but I think it was 17. Spain's about 14, I think. It's a little higher, but it would be, right? Right. It, okay. That makes sense, right? But see, um, for, so for example, in Spain, my girlfriend runs um, a real estate agency and she's do, she does uh, holiday rentals. This year, she only has Spanish people renting. No foreigners coming in. Only Spanish. Not even people okay. from France or... No, no. She, last year she had people from she had people from France, from from England, from Netherlands. This year she has not one foreigners. 
Shimano had 17 properties, 17 wow. properties, sorry. Not one. So it's only Spanish people coming. We see it. Now, Spanish people tend to spend differently than foreigners. They come here, they go to the supermarket, they stay home. Right. So they're not going to go spending. <laughs> yeah. They're not going to go spending. They're going to go in the weekend, maybe one time in a bar or a restaurant. But all that is going to be, the, again, the flow of money missing those businesses. Yeah. And even now, you know, they just reopened the border in Europe. And she was, she went, my girlfriend went to France yesterday. On the plane, which seat, I actually asked her to count how many seats she had and how many people in the plane. They had 184 seats, 20 yeah. people in the plane. Wow. So they fly, but even then people are not moving around yet. You know? Yeah, so I mean, I guess the point here is that at the end of the day, having a huge number of insolvencies is already baked in the cake. I mean, it, it, it's, it's going yes. to happen. <laughs> um, and yep. really, there's nothing central banks can do about that. Um, if a business has no cash flow, it has no cash flow. And this isn't really being talked about that much in the mainstream media. Yeah. So, yeah. No, they don't. You don't. And, and whatever packages they put, you know, they give access to a tax credit. They give access to more debt. This is not replacing the loss of revenue. And even with what they give, it will take a chunk of revenue later when they work again anyway. Because if I take a loan now, that's not a grant that I have to pay back. Okay, I have a little interest, I still have to pay back. I don't have to pay back for the next six months, fine. I will have to pay back next year. So I will need that. That's taking a future of my revenue. And so right. what if all the packages are bridged like that? Yeah, that's been pretty consistent around the world. It's, it, they're solving, yeah. well, of course, because many people didn't think there was a problem in economies in uh, late 2019. I mean, Japan was, for example, you know, in recession, so clearly had a problem and Europe was stagnant. And, um, and so, and then COVID comes. So it, see, again, we, look, COVID camps, you really eat in mouths, right? In February, I went to New York uh, and I wrote an article about retail in New York being dead and that was going to be dead. And then COVID hits. I saw it all over the place. That was happening. And, and we saw it coming. COVID is, was just the accelerator. That's yeah. all it was. Exactly. And maybe make it a bit worse. But it was coming. It was all over the data. I think in, in January or February again, we published 20 pages of data uh, at GMI showing this is not good. And then COVID happened. Yeah. And to your point, so, like, you know, so I was just going to say that governments have, I mean, they've basically pretty consistently put more debt on businesses by the various programs they're running into businesses that already have too much debt. And even if you don't have to pay the interest for six months, in six months and one day, and oh, and it might be rolled again, right? But eventually you're going to have to pay for this. And the extra yeah, debt just weighs exactly. on GDP. In the, you have to pay, you're going to have to pay a certain way. And that's what people don't understand. They said, I put a tweet last uh, during the weekend saying, well, you're going to have tax rates. It's going to happen. No, it's not. They just print the money out. And people say, well, government just print their way out. No, it's not. They don't print their way out of deficit. They can't. You can't do that. Um, so now the U.S., the way they build the packages was some, some loan that can convert into grants. Now, here it wasn't like that in Europe, for example. And um, a big problem in Europe is going to be the budget deficit of each country. 
yeah. we have there is that law in, in Europe where they're not allowed to have more three than three percent of deficit. Now it took eight years for Spain, France, Italy to go from minus eight to minus three percent. The only one being positive being Germany. Now next year when they when they update the deficit number, we're going to be around minus twenty. Now, how many years is it going to take to go back to levels that are acceptable for the European, for European Union? And more importantly, what are they going to do for that? The last, from 2012 and 20, that was the austerity measure they implemented everywhere. Budget cuts, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of health cuts, a lot of stuff like that. That was the austerity from 2012. Now, this is going to be that on steroids moving forward. They can't generate growth like that. So you have that. Then on top of it, you have all the businesses that took more debt that are most likely going to go bankrupt because they can't pay. Yep. So it's, it's, it's a real, you know, printing money right now is solving the problem right now. That's it. It's just creating a bigger one for later. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it, I mean, everything we've just talked about is, well, I mean, I mean everything's pretty deflationary we just talked about. And, and, yes. then that, and, that, and that reduces tax receipts. Um, which means, to yeah. your point, taxes have to go up, which means people spend less. And I mean, my point to people has recently has been, look, I mean, like for a start, millennial generation has never, in fact, and, and Generation X too, like they haven't been through like a sustained deflationary period and people are going to have salaries cut, not temporary, but permanent. And yeah, these things are just not, no, very few people have lived through it before. And my point to people has been, look, governments are going to end up taxing everything they can. Just everything yeah. possible to tax. Like you have a property, yeah. your property tax is going to go up like fivefold. I mean, there's just, mm -hmm. because they're going to, they have to somehow eventually balance the, their P&L else. But exactly, and, and exactly, exactly that. A government, if you think of it as a business and revenue streams, there is one way the revenue comes in for government. Tax. Exactly. This is it. So if they come out in many ways, they still need to bring it in. And if they spend too much, it's going to create an imbalance that we're going to have to deal with later. You know, that could that could break the union, the European Union. Just that. Yeah, I think it's going to be. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm British, right? So you know, obviously the UK's had a interesting relationship <laughs> with Europe, but let's not go into all that, right? But the point is, like, you know. Europe's pretty good at kicking the can down the road. Um, you know, it, it, like with Greece and other things, you know, it, it's pretty good at not solving the, it's pretty good at putting a sticky plaster on and then, you know, kicking the can. And then, well, in the last kind of 10 years, then just another problem's come up. But, and I guess this is the fascinating thing is no, no one knows exactly, you know, when that, when that bursts, but if it does, it could be gigantically destabilizing. And I've been a fan of Europe because it's prevented um, any wars happening in Europe for a long time, right? Since the second yes, World War. Yes, for, for what? Yeah, 60 years. 70 and years. this has never been the case before. You look at the 19th century, 18th century, 17th century, the first half of the 20th century, there were constant wars. Um, so mm -hmm. I, 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 I just... So, so now, yeah. look, they're already struggling to, to agree on a budget and how to structure it and how to do it. So they're going to end up eventually agreeing, right? With Germany being really strong at the table. Now, in two years' time, when it's time to bring the deficit back up, Germany is going to be, you know, asking all the countries to do a lot of efforts. And if, if, if nobody 
agree, then you're going to have a bigger problem. It's just they're going to have to agree on more cut later. No choice. Whatever they agree on now. You know, there is no long-term solution, unfortunately. And, and yeah, then you have to think if that's the end, if, if the, 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 end of, the end of Europe come, what's happening to the euro, to the dollar, to the, all the, the loan uh, denominated in euros? Then you come all the, the realistic stuff that comes on the table. Yeah. No, it's um, yeah. well, I guess it was, <laughs> some food for thought there, yeah. I think. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's what many people and this is what of course the Brits were saying in the nineties was, wait a minute, if you if your fiscal policy and monetary policy are just different, in effect, you know, monetary policy set Europe wide, fiscal policy set by country. That this is just going to be a problem at some point. And this was a big debate in the UK. And, um, but, you know, and Europe's kind of got through for 20, 30 years, but yeah, they've never solved it. So it'd be very interesting. No, they, they never solved Yeah, exactly. They never solved it. Now it doesn't mean that it's going to break maybe, you know, it, I'm not saying that, um, but I'm saying risk are real. Risk yeah. are real. And, and yes, and every country acting, and we saw in the COVID that every country was acting differently. So we start to have that behavior now between countries. Yeah, that when was before they were more pushed. Yeah. You know, that, this is a change in behavior. That's why you need to pay attention. That was when a, big... a change like this. That's going to impact later. Yeah, because they where... get used to deal with things personally, and they get you know all that. Is, I think is very important. Sorry, I cut you. That's okay. Like, um, I, I think the best example was when Italy got hit hard, and they asked for help, and they basically got the middle finger from Germany and France, and. Yeah. It, it, it was unbelievable how fast suddenly it was not a united Europe. It was every country for themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, it was because it was becoming so big so fast. Yeah. It's like, okay, we're all alone. Yeah. You know, That's interesting. It's, and, and, and it shows you the behavior, how quickly things can spin. That's, that's the, 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 what to learn on that is pay attention to how things can quick, can change so quickly and switch. Uh, and and you can't do nothing about it. And the COVID was the perfect example for that. It shows it shows the the cracks. Yeah, absolutely. And so what's what's like? I'm just trying to bring it to like a a, a slightly different point, but related. So, um, you know, we hear a lot from Raúl, right, on on kind of um his style of investing. But what's kind of your style of investing? Is it similar? Are you are you shorter term, longer term, or I, I'm assuming you're going to be pretty driven by data and macro as opposed to just being short-term tactical, but I could be wrong. Look, um, I, I'm, I'm, yes, yes, I am, but I'm not, like, like, I'm not an experienced trader, so I'm learning as I do it. Um, and so far, it hasn't worked so well for me, to be honest. Because I, what I understand is trading is one thing, analyzing is another one. You know, executing. What, what's funny is I find some really good trade and I struggle to execute them and be, um, and be, uh, oh, what's the word? I can't find my word, sorry. And be disciplined about it. Right, yeah. So I get, for example, this year I gave two or three people, I gave some trades. They were killers. They killed it for real. Then I found one and I put it on and I wasn't paid. So see, when we talk, that's perfect point, actually. When we talk about uh, risk, appetite, and time frame. So I put a trade on, and it didn't work. It was a short-term trade. Uh, but it didn't work straight away for me, so I had to take a lot of pain. So I get off the trade. And you know what happened normally when you get off the trade. It just spiked up the next day. Of course. And that was a long <laughs> trade. And I, and I was like, okay, you're kidding me. And, that, and this is 
because my risk appetite wasn't big enough. But the time in the time frame was different than what I think. It was a bit longer. It was a bit riskier. But I had to close the trade and end up losing money. So see, those are the things that I'm learning as we go. Right now, I'm short few uh, few comp- I'm short few companies on on the bed that the COVID is going to impact more than we think in the next few weeks. Uh, you know, I build I build few models, uh, and uh, and I don't see you know I don't see borders reopening soon, uh, at least between between continents. So that, that for me is, uh, is there's, there's a trade to put there. And if I'm wrong, I just close it and that's it. But right now I have a, and, and this time I have a six months window. So yeah. I took, I, basically my bet is it, ha- it has to happen until the end of the year. And yeah, I, I, if any correction, I'm, I'm good. That's it. Yeah, that's exactly, um, I've actually done exactly the same thing. I, I, I've, I've used, and, and, and because the election is November, that's another kind of catalyst. Mm-hmm. And it's especially yep. a catalyst for volatility, right? And so, um, yes, correct. I mean, whatever way it's going to go, it's going it, to go. It, it's yeah, probably going to get volatile. We know that. So, this yeah. is, so I've kind of gone a little more heavy into some longer expiry options, which by definition mean you're long volatility um, on really boring things. But, you know, again, with options, you know, you can get good returns easily, you can also lose money very fast. But I, I yes, think yeah, I but quite that, like that time that frame right you now. Can aff- if if it's money you can afford, then it's okay yeah. to lose. If if it's money you can afford to lose, then it's fine. You know the risk. You know, clear, fair and square, and you still have a way to get out uh, if you see it really plays against you. Yeah, and like uh, you know, said- but that, that, this is exactly what I've done. Six months, uh, I got some puts on a few companies, and and we'll see. And obviously on crypto, I just piled up just to be ready. But yeah. I wasn't as good as you, because so, I know you have a really, really, really good enterprise, and I'm jealous of it. Um, no, like, I, look, I, like I said on my, it's funny, like my, one of my more popular podcasts is one when I talk about mistakes. <laughs> and I think, and I just been, and I try to be really, really, really honest in it, which is like, um, you, in investing, you're gonna, you're gonna screw up. Um, just never bet the farm. When I'm talking about options trades, I'm putting on like 1% of capital, like maybe two yeah. maximum. Like, so if, to your point, if you lose it, well, you still have 98% of capital. That's okay. Um, but I, yeah. I've, I've had people come to me saying they were in trades they didn't understand. They put 20, 30% of their capital into an options trade. I had one person uh, do this with a one day expiry and they didn't realize. So it's like, one of the reasons I'm doing this, these podcasts is to try and you know, help people that aren't as, you know, you know rule knows how to trade. <laughs> He's tons of experience. He knows all these things. So if you listen to this, it'd be like, yeah. this is all very obvious, but I, I, I know because so people- see the best example was Raul this weekend, he put a trade on for, for our clients, uh, which was shorting, I don't know, G and AT&T and thing. And, and I said to him, so why are you not doing interruptions? Because you can, you know, the risk reward is much better anywhere implied volatility. It's too high, too expensive. Then yeah. I had to learn about implied volatility. <laughs> Suddenly, <laughs> you know, <laughs> certainly I had to learn all about it. And I'm like, and, and these are the things that, that you, I don't think you're ever going to learn unless you're pro in trading whatever asset and you've done it for years and years and years. You know most of it. But if you haven't done that and you've done other jobs, then you, you, st- you have a lot to learn and you always learn about all the small detail that's going to make a difference. You know, when, when, and then when you trade with option and going to implied in volatility, I start le- learning about the Greeks. 
Yep. And then on and on and on after that, you know, and, and which is for you, if you used to trade, you know, all that stuff. I wasn't, for example. And my knowledge of trading will be as much as, as all those Robin Hood traders, except I have the knowledge of the economy and how the system works. So I have, you know, I, play, I, place, I, place, I place my bet um, based on that too. And so it's less of gambling, let's say, like what they do. Uh, but in the end, yeah, you, you, you have so much to learn. And the best way to learn is definitely to lose money. Now, it depends on how much you can afford to lose. But this is where I got the best lessons about, about money. And, right. and this is, if, if, if this is the point of your podcast is before going in a trade, there is a lot of work to do, a lot of back, background work to do. And, and so many technicals you can look at and so many things you can look at that once and you can you can you can build a strategy based based on on the size of your capital or how much you want to to lose or what's your goal but all that you need to understand that you need to do that it's not just like i'm going to buy options on i'm going to buy options on s&p because i think it's going to go up forever well you can't do that if you do and it works you're lucky this is luck exactly but yeah we but in finance you can not control the luck aspect but you can definitely put the odds in your favor. And that's all it's about. All the background work you do, it's to put the odds in your favor. Yeah, absolutely. I had a good example of all this, which was, um, it, it was a Robinhood trader. And he contacted me on Twitter. Um, and he said, oh, I just, I've just started trading on Robinhood. I don't know what I'm doing. And was buying um, Tesla puts. So not calls, puts. Uh, and yeah. um, Because a lot of Robinhood, of course, have been buying calls. And... He thought it would make him a huge return. And so I just went and checked the implied volatility and what, where these things were priced. And I said, well, look, if Tesla goes to zero, you, you, you might make 4X. And he was very surprised. And because he thought he was going to make like 100X or something. But it, and you didn't even need to know the implied volatility to work it out because you can see what you paid for the put. Um, and, yeah. and, and my point to him was like, look, just... If, if the trade goes against you, don't keep doubling down on this one. Like just, you know, if the price keeps going up and this is a losing trade, take the loss, learn from it and do exactly what you said. Study the different Greeks. You know, you don't need to read every textbook ever made. There's tons of um, great content on YouTube, um, which is, yeah. and, but just learn from it because, and, and to his credit, he, he said um, that, yeah, he, his whole point was, look, I'm going to learn from this, whatever happens. And, and he got it. Um, my concern is the kind of people who they just think this is all easy. Um, and, and it can be easy for one or two trades, but it's not easy over a thousand trades. So, uh, yeah. And see, and Tesla is a good example. As a professional in finance, I wouldn't touch Tesla longer short. I wouldn't touch it. Nor do I. And I have an opinion <laughs> on Tesla. I wrote a long piece about it. And my piece would say, short it like, like a lot of experts but I will not touch it because on the long side, you have emotional people. So here, you cannot factor the emotion in. You cannot, that cannot be part of your odds or it's going to work. And, you know, all those, I mean, although there's, there's a lot of companies like that, that you cannot touch them. Although it's so logical what you think. And so like, okay, it's so it's going to be easy. Tesla, you don't touch. <laughs> it's just safer. Yeah, and I think people... It's all related to that. I mean, the key word you said is emotion, right? And you know, every, every te trades like Tesla, whatever you want to do with it, go long, short, whatever. It's almost always an emotion, becomes an emotional trade. 
um, yeah. and, um, and, and, and then they're so much harder to get out of if it goes against and like, um, so yeah, maybe you become more emotional. The more you lose, the more you become emotional about it. Exactly. And, and, and there is a, I, I, yesterday I read a, a great quote on a website about, about trading, which was every good trader um, managed to have, if you, if, you want, if, if you want to be a good trader, basically you have to be able to trade against your confirmation bias. Yep. All right. So, and that's it. If, if this is it. And I was like, yeah. So even if I think, it means basically for people so they can understand, even if you think a stock is going to go down or up, you have to be ready to bet against what you think, having done your homework. So you can't just do the homework and think it's still going to go down, for example. If your work tells you it's going to go up, but your conviction and your gut tells you it's going to go down, then you have to be careful. And this is where the emotions comes in in the picture, where you have to... to a, be, um, be able to acknowledge it and D, and, and D, deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is what I, I learned all that myself by trading. Yeah, and I just, and, and I think that, that makes total sense. And my advice to people is also often just look, just, I, I'm not a fan of paper trading. So when you're not putting any money at risk, I think that, because then, in effect, there's no boring. So, <laughs> the same. I'm like, you put any trade on, and any, you don't have the risk. Right. So paper trading, you what don't have the risk forget, aspect of it. What people forget is, I mean, I can put a trade on to buy one share of a company, right? It, right. Let's say it's a hundred dollars, right? Well, there might be an insignificant amount of money. It might be a significant amount of money. People, for, for some people, but the point is, is if you just have one share of something or one call option or whatever, it's, it's sitting there in your account. It stares at you every day. And it's amazing how much more thorough you're going to be. So I suggest to people often, if you're just learning something, just put a tiny, put the smallest possible trade on and just, and you're not going to make or lose any money. That's fine. Um, but just get some experience of trading it. Um, and but then people will have to go to deal with their emotions. If the trade works, I should have put more. Ah, well, I, yeah, but that's all. You know, you, then you have that. So then you're back to the, to the <laughs> discipline that comes with trading and, and knowing I put that trade, I don't, I, if I make X, it doesn't matter. I'm not, you know, you, it comes to discipline and strategy in the end and you have to stick to it and don't look back. Yeah, exactly. You know? Well, Remy, let's, I think that's a good time to probably end. That's a good Good, uh, right, perfect. Yeah, I think it was, it was a good discussion. I enjoyed it. I yeah, hope no, it's been you. useful. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it was great. All right. Brilliant. Thanks very much for your time. And if people, so, I mean, the best way to follow you, I think, is on Twitter, right? Is that right? Yes. Yes. It's the best. Just at Remy. At, uh, Titor, yeah, Titor Remy. Uh, um, yeah, you'll find me there. Okay, yes. brilliant. Great. Thanks very much. Right. Thank you very much, Chris.